bank. They want to be massive, a bank for the world, but at the same time they want to be personal, like a local bank for everybody that um, has their money in them. Or let me give you another example, McDonald's. Again, you don't get a much bigger company than McDonald's. Those golden arches um, are one of the few symbols that is understood the whole, uh, the whole world round. Um, and yet, uh, they want to be personal. They want people to feel like McDonald's is a place for them. And the staff are really friendly and nice and say to them, have a nice day and do you want fries with that? And that sort of a thing. McDonald's, they want to be big, but they want to be personal as well. That's why they call their meals things like Happy Meals and that sort of a thing. Uh, and then another example that I want to give you is, uh, you know, you have to put up with this because I'm from Sheffield. I think Sheffield is an example of big but personal. Um, Sheffield is known sometimes as Europe's largest village. Uh, so even though it's a, a, a big city, it's the fourth or the fifth uh, biggest city in the UK, um, depending on which people you believe. Um, it also has a reputation of being personal, being a place where people know one another. It's like a village. Um, you can't go into a city centre without bumping into loads of people that you know. Everybody's friendly. That's the sort of idea. Sheffield likes to have the reputation um, of being big but personal. Now, why do I say all of that? Um, because the, what we're looking at today, the, those five verses that we had read out, we're only, only just going to look at the last verse, really, verse 20. But it gives us a very big vision of Jesus, and particularly in our verse, of what Jesus came to do. A big vision, a massive vision, like a great big picture of a wonderful, beautiful landscape, a big picture, a big vision, um, a wide-angle lens picture of Jesus and of what he came to do, and yet we'll see that Jesus and what he came to do is big, it's massive, bigger than maybe we ever thought, but it's also deeply, deeply personal. Big, bigger than we can even imagine maybe, but deeply personal for each one of us. Um, we're going to do that by just looking at verse 20. We're going to build up a, a sentence as we go along. Um, but uh, f- just have a look there at verse 19 and 20 again. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That is, Jesus is fully God and fully man. If you were to look at Jesus' CV, you know, you'd see at the same time he'd have all the qualities and characteristics to make him God. And at the same time, all the qualities and characteristics to make him perfectly human. And in this this verse, in verse 20, which is what we're really going to focus on, we see what the point of that was. Why did God's Son, is described in these verses, why did he want to come and dwell in a body? Fully God, and yet he became fully man. Why? Why did Jesus come? And we're going to build up a... Uh, we're going to build up a sentence, and as we do, we're going to see that what Jesus came to do was big, really big, but deeply personal. Okay? So the first thing we're going to learn is this. Hopefully. That's the sentence. We're going to, that, I've given the game away. That's what we're learning this morning, in entirety. I was meant, we were meant to build it up piece by piece, but we'll go through it piece by piece. It means I don't need to worry about the clicker. That's good. Okay? Jesus came to reconcile all things by his blood. Okay? So, first bit we want to think about, Jesus came to reconcile. Jesus came to reconcile. Just have a look at verse 20 again. And through him, that's Jesus, through him God wanted to reconcile to himself all things. Jesus came to reconcile. Now think, 
the end of war. Think um, enmity over, hostilities ceased, everybody puts their weapons down. Think friendship restored, the air cleared, forgiveness received. That's all the sort of kind of ideas that are there in that word, reconciliation. Now, for some of us, maybe that's a bit of a shock. Jesus came to reconcile. Maybe some of us didn't even realise that there was a problem. You know, aren't we all, just by virtue of our bear, aren't we all God's children? Maybe you've heard that sort of idea. Maybe that's the sort of thing you've always thought. Well, not unless we've been reconciled to God by his son. That's not our natural position. Friendship with God isn't something that we're born into simply by being human. Quite the opposite. Just look at verse 21. It's after our passage, but that describes naturally what our, our condition is. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. Our natural position with God is not friends or children of God or partners with God. It's enemies, rivals, criminals before the one that we've offended. Um, An adulterous partner before the one that we've cheated on. Being handed the divorce papers. That's our position naturally before God. There needs to be a reconciliation and until, until we realise that, then we won't understand pretty much the first thing about Jesus and why he came. He didn't come on a fact-finding mission uh, to sort of, you know, find out what it's like down here with the rest of us. He didn't come uh, simply to identify with us in, in all of our pain and mess, although he certainly did do that. He didn't come simply to tell us what God is like, although he did wonderfully do that. Now, he came to end war between human beings and God. He came to make peace, to make friendship, and to turn enemies into friends. And if, you, if, if we don't realise that there is naturally that mess between us and God, the relationship is broken because of our sin. If we don't realise that, then we won't understand the first thing about Jesus and what he came to do. Because he came to reconcile. You see, Christianity is not about us seeking God. This is what sets it apart from most other world religions. Christianity is not about us seeking after God, in the first and foremost. It's God seeking us. All the initiative is his, the Son. That wonderful person, that those verses that we read um, together speak about. The one who's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. Everything belongs to him. Um, everything was created by him. He stepped into our world as a man, as the God-man, to bring reconciliation between us and God. When all that we were concerned about was the next stage of the war, we weren't even beginning to be bothered about being reconciled to him. We were just thinking about how we were going to fight the next phase of the war against God. But here's the second surprise. Um, What is it that this verse says is actually being reconciled? Just have a look again at that verse. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Doesn't say all people. Doesn't say all 
you know, whatever, it says all things. Jesus came to reconcile all things. That's strange, isn't it? That, that means it's not just humanity. What does, what, does, uh, what does Paul, the guy who's writing this, what does he mean by all things? We'll just have a look. Um, look at, just have a look at verse 16. Because he's been using this phrase, all things, throughout this little chunk of his letter. And verse 16 shows us what it means. Just have a look at it. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Everything. Everything. All things means everything that the Son of God has made. Everything that's been created. Rocks, trees, atoms, animals, water, stars, space dust. You name it. All things. Well, what does, that, what does that mean? Jesus came to reconcile all things. That's a bit strange, isn't it? Surely, you know, you need to be a person to be reconciled, don't you? Or you need to, you know, be able to have a relationship. I wasn't aware that, you know, rocks and trees had fallen out with God and needed to be reconciled. What, what on earth is, is he on about? How can there be reconciliation between God and, and all things? What does that mean? Well, it's a little bit like this. Um, do you remember when Tony Blair declared war on Iraq? Now, you and I weren't involved personally in that decision, were we? But because he rules this country, or he did back then, it was fair to say um, the UK is at war with Iraq. And we might have been going, hang on a minute, I'm in, I'm in the UK, I don't, I don't remember declaring war on Iraq. But, you know, that's a, that's a valid way to talk, isn't it? Because Tony Blair, he's in charge. He does something. He takes the rest of the country with him. Well, that's sort of the, like the relationship between human beings and everything else. Because when God first made human beings, he made us to be rulers of this world. Rulers of his creation. When we declared war on God, we took everything else with us. We took the whole creation with us. We plunged our whole kingdom, this creation, into a messed up relationship with God. We declared war on God and we took the rest of creation with us. Creation was meant to enjoy a wonderful relationship with God. It's described there in verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Everything in the universe was created, meant to be enjoying a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. But it was meant to be through us, as rulers of the creation. And when we rebelled against God, we took the whole creation with us. It's like we plunged the whole... Um, the whole of the universe um, into a situation where it was out of line with God. It wasn't fully enjoying the full blessing of what it means to have God as king. We see that all over the place. So do you remember back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve first sinned, God turns all of their blessings into curses. But that includes him cursing the ground. Adam and Eve sin, but it's more than Adam and Eve that get punished. There's some implications for the animals. The serpent has to crawl on his belly and eat the dust. And there's implications for the whole creation. God curses the ground and it produces 
thorns and thistles from now on. You see, when human beings do something, it affects the rest of creation. Because we're meant to be creation's rulers. Under God is the ultimate king. If we rebel against God, then it messes up the whole creation. The whole creation needs reconciling with God. See, before sin, God simply poured out life by the bucket load on his creation. But now we live in a creation that's marked by death, don't we? Before human sin, we lived in a creation that was wonderfully, perfectly ordered by God. There was no chaos. But now we live in a world that has earthquakes and natural disasters and floods, volcanoes. All that sort of stuff, probably even dog poo, is a result of us messing up this world. We declared war on God and we took the whole creation with us because creation was our God-given kingdom. And Jesus came to sort all of that out. All of that out. The same one who made it all, the same one who holds it all together, the same one um, to whom it belongs He stepped into the world in order to sort the whole thing out. Bring the whole of creation back into a right relationship with him and with his father. We we sing a Christmas carol, don't we? I don't know if you know this one. Joy to the world. Anybody know that? Anybody know that? Very good. It's it's actually one of my favourite Christmas carols. There's a verse of it, though, that we tend not to sing. It's sort of fallen out of out of use but the guy that first wrote the hymn wrote the carol um, he, he wrote it in he thought it was important we probably ought to start singing it again but there's a line in, one of the, in, in that verse that we tend not to sing and it, it says this it's exactly what we're talking about here he, that's Jesus comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found if it was, in other words if it was messed up by sin then Jesus came to sort it out. He's not just interested in sorting out human beings and where we stand with God. He wants to sort out, he wants to undo the effects of sin everywhere that they're felt. He wants to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. God cursed creation, not just human beings, when human beings sinned. And Jesus wants to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. He came to restore what was messed up and that was more than just human beings. I hope you're just starting to think, even if um, some of it's going a bit over your head, I hope you're just starting to think, wow, what Jesus came to do is bigger than I ever thought. Because let's face it, it's a massive enough deal to think that he could come and sort out our relationship with God. That's a massive enough deal. But more than that, he wanted to save the whole of creation back into right relationship with God. It turns out that salvation is far bigger than we ever thought. Jesus is not just want to restore human beings, he wants to restore the entire cosmos. Now reconciling human beings is sort of the hinge of it all. Unless we get our relationship sorted with God, then the creation stays where it is. 
So that was a massively important part of what Jesus came to do. It's the hinge of it all, in fact. But still, God's salvation plan encompasses the whole of creation. You see, sometimes as Christians think it's a little bit like this. I don't know if you've ever found yourself thinking this. I know I certainly have. Um, but the, it's not really what the Bible says. Um, we think of it a bit like this. The world is like the Titanic after it's hitting the iceberg. Have you seen the film or know the story from school? Ship hits the iceberg and then once that's happened, there's only one inevitable thing, isn't it? The ship's going down. And we think the world's like that. It's wrecked and it's going down. And so God's salvation plan is he goes, hey, I'm going to send a lifeboat and get as many people onto the lifeboat as I can, cram the lifeboats and sail off while the, the, the creation poof, sinks. Sometimes we think of salvation like that. And there's, there's parts of that that are a little bit true, aren't there? But if this is true, if Jesus came to reconcile all things, well then it's a bit more like this, isn't it? Um, the, world, the world is God's boat. The universe is God's boat. And it is headed for trouble. It's hit an iceberg. And there's only one thing that's going to happen. It's going to go down. But that's because there's been a mutiny on board. And the idiots who now run the ship, well they don't know what to do, so they've gone around smacking all the icebergs they can find. And they don't know how to look after the ship, so it's in a complete mess. It's heading only one way to the bottom of the sea. But, salvation is not God saying, get everybody on the lifeboats, abandon ship. It's Jesus coming to be the captain of the ship once more. That's salvation. He comes to captain the ship and he comes to make the mutineers his friends again. And to make them into decent sailors and plug the holes in the boat and make it the great ship it was always intended to be. That's Jesus' mission. It won't be completed until he comes again. The Bible makes that very clear. Death, decay, sadness, sorrow, sickness, all of those things, they'll be with us until Jesus returns again. But when he does return again, it's not to just take people off the ship and let the ship sink. It's to restore the entire ship. So while the Bible talks about what we sometimes call about, we sometimes call it heaven, the Bible talks about God's future as the new creation. This creation renewed and perfected and restored. God, um, God sorting it out to be everything that he wanted it to be. Everything that he always intended it to be. Undoing all the damage to the ship that's been caused by humanity's mutiny. That doesn't get cleared away until Jesus comes again, but it will get cleared away. Now we'll see, in principle, it's like that's already happened, because when we come on to the final bit of our sentence, we'll see that Jesus' death is, is all the basis that's needed for that. That's why Paul can almost talk as if Jesus has already done it all. As if the job's been finished, even though it won't be fully completed until he comes again. It's because, it's like technically it already has been done. All the paperwork has been signed. Through Jesus' death. We'll come on to that in a moment. But I hope you're beginning to see, if this is true, if Jesus came to reconcile all things, then I want to draw two implications from that. Just sort of press pause on, on where we're going at the moment and just think about two implications. Two things that that are true as a result of that. And the first is this. 
It means evangelism is absolutely vital. Evangelism, telling other people the good news that Jesus came to reconcile. It's absolutely vital. Um, if we care about the world, then evangelism is absolutely vital. Evangelism is stopping the mutiny. It's calling on the mutineers of the ship to become God's obedient friends again. That's what evangelism is. It's like there's a new captain of the ship. He's the guy that should have been in charge all along and he's great. Stop rebelling. And it means hope for our world doesn't lie in environmentalism. I know you might read the papers and see the stuff on the TV about all the stuff we need to do and I'm sure it's very good to get on with your recycling and do those things. That's right, that's absolutely right. But ultimately hope for our world doesn't lie in those things. We're not going to save the planet by those things. Saving the planet is Jesus' job. He came to reconcile all things. He doesn't just care about human beings. He cares about the whole cosmos being in a relationship of blessing with God. Hope for the world doesn't it lie in environmentalism. It doesn't lie in politics. I think we probably know that. It doesn't, doesn't rely on social welfare. It lies with Jesus Christ. The problems are far deeper than melting ice caps, bad laws and poverty. The problems with this world are far deeper than that. They can't be fixed by easy solutions. You see, the ship doesn't just need a few repairs. It needs taken to the dock where the original maker can you know, refit the whole thing. And that's what Jesus came to do. Plus, even, even when we can do good things that do have an impact on the world, and we should be doing those things, we'll come on to that in a minute, what's really needed is changed people. Only changed people can change the world. And this is saying that the change we need is to be reconciled with God. If we want to have an impact on stuff in our world, which we should want to have, Evangelism is absolutely vital. That's the first implication. The second implication, though, is that evangelism is not everything. That might sound strange, given I've just said it's absolutely vital. It is absolutely vital, but it's not the only thing that Christians are to care about. See, Jesus cares about reconciling all things. Jesus, in his mission, cares about everything. He cares about rocks and trees and plants. He's interested in those things. He's not just interested in saving souls. He wants to, when he returns, he's going to renew the whole cosmos. How do you think that means we should live? Well, it means we should share his concerns, shouldn't it? We should care about the people around us who are not reconciled to God. That's evangelism. But we should also care about everything else, because Jesus cares about everything else. We can't say, there's a little part of my life over here that it, it, it doesn't really matter. Being reconciled to God through Jesus doesn't really affect this area of my life. Well, that's not true, because Jesus is interested in everything. He came to reconcile all things. See, if we were, if we were, if we were on a ship that was going to sink, and there was going to be no rescue for the ship, then the only thing to do would be to get people on the lifeboats. But we've seen that's not the best way to understand it. The world is a ship that's headed for the dock where all the repairs and all the upgrades that God wants to do are going to happen to it. And if that's the case, and we're the ones on the ship who know that, well, we ought to be the best sailors, didn't we? 
Christians ought to be the best sort of human beings, the best sort of citizens of the world, the best sort of people that there are. That changes the way we think about the environment, doesn't it? Or caring for people's health and well-being. Or standing up against injustice and wrongdoing. Who else is going to do it? No one else, no one else on the ship is listening to the captain's instructions. You see, we can contribute to Jesus' mission by the way that we do our jobs. By the way that we vote. By being good neighbours. Evangelism is absolutely central, but perhaps we get a better hearing in our evangelism or more opportunities to speak in our evangelism if our lives matched our message. And the message is of a Jesus who came to reconcile all things. He's interested in people deeply, but he wants to reconcile the whole world. The whole creation matters to him. And it should matter to us too. Well, third and final part of the sentence. Jesus came to reconcile, he came to reconcile all things. How did he do that? He came to reconcile all things by his blood. Just look at verse 20 again. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, reconciling all things sounds impressive, doesn't it? Um, you know, we'd expect maybe when Jesus arrived and his, his mission is, I'm going to reconcile all things, we maybe expect a big campaign. Posters, flyers through every door, um, radio adverts, a slot on Sky News. Big. Maybe he'd put on a conference or two. Maybe he'd make a film like Al Gore. You know, big glitz. He'd have a big summit maybe with all the world leaders and say, come on, let's sort the planet out. Um, maybe he'd have a massive live rock concert to raise awareness. You know, we'd expect those sort of things maybe. You know, certainly maybe we'd think, oh, he'll form a massive organisation like the United Nations. That's how he'll sort the world out. He's come to reconcile all things. Boom, that's got to be big, hasn't it? What did it take to bring about this reconciliation? None of those things. His blood. Shed on a cross. The bloody death of the Creator. That's what it took. The God-man entered the world not to launch a big campaign. Not to have a summit with all the world leaders. He didn't even get to produce any decent merchandise. You know, there were no, you know, what did Jesus do wristbands when he came? He came and he died. That's the basis for the reconciliation. See, once humanity, once human beings rebelled against God, once we, once we mounted that mutiny on the ship, well, two things needed doing. Satan needed defeating, because that was who we were now listening to. We behave like we're the captains of the ship when we rebel against God, but really, all we've done is we've handed the captain's uniform to Satan. Satan needed defeating, and he's holding humanity captive in sin and rebellion against God ever since the Garden of Eden that's the situation something needed doing about Satan but also something needed doing about the death sentence on humanity see here we all are 
and creation with us under a curse, and rightfully so. Humanity needed forgiving, we needed our slate wiping clean, we needed the sentence to be cancelled. If reconciliation is going to happen for us and for the whole cosmos, well, those two things need doing. Satan needs sorting out, he needs defeating, and we need forgiving and the slate wiping clean. Just keep your finger in Colossians 1 verse 20 and see over in chapter 2, you probably have to turn over a page or two maybe, it might just be across to the other side of the page that you're on. Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 13 to 15. We'll see there that that's exactly what Jesus did do. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. There was a death sentence hanging over us, but for those who trust in Christ, we've been made alive. Well, how did he do that? Read again. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus came, and when he was nailed to the cross, it was like our sentence was nailed there too. John was talking about uh, a courtroom, wasn't he, when he was explaining justification. Well, it's like the sheet of all the charges against us, and and the evidence proving our guilt, that was nailed to the cross along with Jesus because there he was not hanging there for anything he'd done but hanging there for all the things we'd done our rap sheet became his rap sheet as he hung there God nailed our, our, the proof of our guilt and the charges against us to the cross in Jesus he bore our punishment and he made forgiveness for us but at the same time as he hung there doing that he defeated Satan look at verse 15 Having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's talking about Satan and his rebel kingdom. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, the one thing that Satan always had on us was that that he could bring out, that could prevent reconciliation between us and God and prevent reconciliation spreading to the whole cosmos. The one thing Satan had on us that he could do to ruin that was our sin. He could always stand in God's court and say, you can't be, friend, you can't be reconciled with them. You can't, you can't justify these guys. They're guilty. And you're God. You're going to turn a blind eye to sin. You can't do that. And he was right. In a way. But once Jesus has sorted that out on the cross, Satan has no... He has no weapon. He's disarmed, as it says in verse 15. He's disarmed. He's got no weapon against us. In other words, what's this saying? Look, it's saying mutiny on the ship is as good as defeated because of Jesus' death. Satan, well, he's still active, but in terms of his status, he's on death row. He's just waiting for the day when he's finished off for good. And the way is made open for rebels to come back. There's enough forgiveness available in Jesus' death for us all. So a day is going to come when we'll see that this reconciliation is all finished. We'll experience it. We'll be able to touch it and taste it. But Jesus' death is all the work needed to make it happen. 
all the basis that's needed for it. So just, again, press pause for a minute on where we're going. Just think about the cost of that. Look again at verse 20. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Don't you think that if, if there could have been another way of sorting us out and sorting the creation out, don't you think if there could have been another way that Jesus would have taken that? It would have been done. See, you and I, we might be tempted to think that we don't need the cross. But that's not the way God looks at it. If, it could have, if we could have our relationship with God sorted out any other way, don't you think he would have done that? A less costly way, a less painful way for his son? Now the fact that it happened tells us that it's the only way. And if it's the only way, then every single one of us need it. We need it daily. See, Jesus' death was costly, but it was also loving. This is the measure of how much the Creator loves his creation. Uh, my son Noah, we, um, we went on holiday uh, to France this past summer. My little boy Noah, he wasn't quite two then, he was about 20 months, something like that. 22 months old when we went on holiday. Um, he's now sort of two, coming up to two and a half. Um, and when he was on the beach, he, he, he discovered that he loved making sandcastles. So most days of our holiday, we were in France for over two weeks. And nearly every day we went to the beach at some point in the day, because that was all he wanted to do, make sandcastles on the beach. And there he was, making his creation, pouring the sand in, putting great effort and care into it. Over, you know, we taught him to pat it. He'd say, Daddy, Daddy, you pat it too, so I had to get a spade and pat it as well. And think the thing off. Now, if, it, if, if when he pulled the, you know, the plastic sandcastle thing up, it was a bit rubbish, you know, a couple of the towers hadn't worked because the sand wasn't quite pushed in enough. If it was a bit rubbish and it crumbled a bit and it didn't look very good, he just got rid of it. He just destroyed it. He just was like, that's it. You know, in the way that only a sort of two-year-old can. He didn't really care that much about them, did he? It was, you know, they were sandcastles. He didn't care that much. Because when they went wrong... That's what God could have done with his creation when it went wrong. There it is. It's fine. Sin comes in. Oh, a couple of the towers have crumbled. It's a bit of a mess. The tide's coming. It's only going one way. Oh well. It's as dispensable as a sandcastle. If God wanted to, that's what he could have done when creation went wrong. But he didn't. And that's a mark of how much he loves his creation. God could have just binned it. When we messed up, he could have binned creation. He could have thrown it away and he could have made a new one. Of course he could have. He'd made one already. He could make a new one. But he didn't. He could have done that with you and me. But he didn't. He stepped right in and he paid the price with his blood necessary to save it us and all of creation see some people look at the mess that the world is in and they say that proves God doesn't care about it because it's in a mess 
So there's a song, Peace on Earth, by uh, U2. Um, and it, it's got this line, and it's a really good song. And this is the way sometimes people feel. And you can, if you think about the newspapers, and you think about maybe things that have gone on in your own life, maybe you can understand and relate to this. This is one of the lines in the song. Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man a line? Jesus, in the song you wrote, the words are sticking in my throat. Peace on earth. We hear it every Christmas time, but hope and history don't rhyme. He's looking at the world and he's going, well, peace on earth? That's not what we've got. It's a mess. Do you care, God, he says? The answer, of course, is that Jesus more than took the time. He gave his blood. He entered history and he made peace. If we find ourselves wondering whether or not God cares, well, we just need to look at Jesus and his death on a cross. So let me conclude. What Jesus came to do is massive. I hope all of us have had that little bit of a feeling this morning of like, oh, okay, it's bigger than I ever thought. It's a big deal. It's massive, it's big, but it's also deeply personal. So it boils down to this for each of us, doesn't it? Are you reconciled to God through Jesus? Have you put down your weapons? Have you stopped fighting against him? Have you received his forgiveness? Have you come into friendship with him? If not, you're out of sync with where the whole universe is going. He came to reconcile all things. And one day, he will have, he will, he'll have a perfect universe where nothing is out of friendship with him. Which means there's only one place for those of us who still want to rebel at that point. You're in a story that's going to a happy ending... But it's a happy ending where you'll be left out if you're not reconciled to God through Jesus now. You're out of relationship with the captain of the world. So don't be. Come to God through Jesus. Be a part of where the whole creation was meant to be and where one day it will be. Whatever's stopping you cannot be worth it. There's, there's enough forgiveness in Jesus' death for every single one of us. See, big doesn't mean impersonal. Big, when it comes to Jesus and his reconciliation, means he's big enough to forgive and welcome and accept even you. His cross is that big. And if you are reconciled to God through Jesus, then the challenge is to live in that reality, isn't it? We're reconciled to the one who wants to reconcile all things. And he paid in his blood to do so. The one who came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That's what he came to do. That's what he's interested in doing in your life. You see, Jesus is so big that his reconciliation encompasses everything. God wants all things to be under Jesus' loving rule and we should want that too. 
It starts with us bit by bit letting what he's done in reconciling us to God change the way that we do everything. Change all the little different parts of our lives bit by bit. It means there is no such thing as a Sunday-only Christian. There's no such thing as a Friday night off from being a follower of Jesus. He came to reconcile all things. He wants everything and everyone to enjoy his loving rule. Every part of our lives needs to be brought under his rule. There's no such thing as a part of my life that doesn't belong to Jesus. You know, this part belongs to Jesus and this part belongs to me. No, he wants to reconcile all things. Let's pray. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And Heavenly Father, we've seen this morning just a little bit of how big um, what it is that Jesus came to do is. Um, and we thank you for it. We thank you that it's big um, in terms of his care for the whole of creation and his plan to bring all of that creation to salvation and renewal. It's big in terms of a forgiveness that's big enough, wide enough, deep enough to encompass us. It's big enough in that he's the God-man who shed his blood that all these things might be so. And yet it's deeply personal and so we pray you teach each one of us what our response should be Father, perhaps there are some of us who need to come to you for the first time through Jesus and asking for reconciliation. We pray you'd help us, give us the strength, the presence of mind to do that. Perhaps there are some of us that need to think about how that reconciliation impacts all the details of our lives. Again, we pray that we won't simply feel overwhelmed by the bigness of it, but that we'd and I look to you for help and strength and guidance for how we go about doing that bit by bit in our lives. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his great glory. Amen.